being a child of God. And that is an amazing truth, and it is so glorious. But for some of us, many of us in this room, and and y'all at home too, for many of us, our experience of what it means to be a child of someone else is pretty awful. For many of us, it involves capriciousness, parents that said one thing and did other things, that changed all the time, that beat us, that we had to pick up off the ground because they had passed out drunk. Some of this has to do with the fact that our parents just never seemed to ever be satisfied with us. We were never good enough. And we spent most of our life trying to prove that they were wrong. And so an idea like adoption, we're like, yay, sounds good. Because it's inevitable for us to have in mind when we think of God and it says, Abba, Father, and we go, Father, the only image of Father I have is that dude who was absent, who barely talked to me, who was never happy with me. I mean, some of us have good parents, so I'm, I'm, I'm overstating some things. But, I, but for those of us that didn't, just need you to understand, I get it. The idea that we should instead of seeing God through the lens of our experience of being parented, should instead view our parents through the lens of how God is a parent, it's hard. It's hard. And so I just want to tell you that before we even jump into this, I get it. Listen, my parents were a train wreck. A train wreck. They did the best they could, but they were a train wreck. God love them. So, all that being said, I wonder if I'm the only one in here that when has this has this uh, fantasy that goes on in my head every once in a while that I might maybe have this long lost uncle that I never knew about who's just filthy rich, and. Um, and all of a sudden, you know, one day I get a knock at the door and it's some attorney and they're like, Mr. Gilmartin, yes, um, I'm with Wharton Altizer and Weaver and um, just want to let you know that uh, your, your uncle has died. Who? Your uncle. Didn't know I had him. That's sad. Well, he's left you everything. What do you mean everything? Ah, he was a billionaire. Whoo, I love my uncle. Like... We have that fantasy, right? This idea that all of a sudden there will be this relationship that brings with it all of these privileges that we never knew. It's like the Annie syndrome, right? Like little orphan Annie being treated like a slave, uh, all of a sudden being adopted by Uncle, uh, Uncle Warbucks, who is like, or Daddy Warbucks, uh, Uncle, yeah, I was stuck in Uncle, Daddy Warbucks, who is like a bazillionaire. And, and all of a sudden she goes from, you know, the one little red dress that was always dirty to awesomeness. It was a hard knock life. Now, New York, New York. There's something incredibly fantastical about that. 
what if, what if we were actually, what if that were actually available to you right now? What if we're actually available? Like, go from this, I am constantly hungry and thirsty. I am, I'm constantly feeling, feeling vulnerable and at risk. I'm, I'm constantly viewed uh, by others with this kind of, this, this shame and instead go from this, this new reality. Our passage this morning brazenly declares that that is actually the case. It's why this, this idea of adoption is so amazing. Uh, if you're into notes, there's, there's an outline. You can use that in your bulletin or in your worship guide. Um, we're just, just two points this morning, but don't get too excited. That doesn't mean it's going to be shorter. Uh, just two points. We're going to start with a real bondage, okay? Uh, if you have a Bible in front of you, look at the first two verses. Paul says, as long as the heir is a child, he's no different than a slave, though he's the owner of everything, but he's under guardians. That is a common example in Paul's day and makes no sense to us. So here's the way it would work, okay? Um, so you have a family, uh, like a wealthy landowner, and then you've got his kids. And his kids one day, we'll just say the oldest son, because that's who gets all the stuff. The oldest son um, is a child. He's eight years old or whatever. He is not the owner. In fact, he is under a guardian. And we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, but a guardian is actually the head slave in the family. In other words, the child, the son, the heir, is under the authority of a slave. And so Paul's saying he's no different than any other slave. All the other slaves are under that dude's authority too. He's no different. In fact, he's not treated much different. Now, when I say slaves, of course, these wouldn't have been slaves such as we normally think of in this country. Um, slavery in, in the ancient world, especially in the Roman world, oftentimes, some of it was because you got conquered and you were put into slavery. Some of it was indentured servants who, who couldn't um, find a way to uh, feed themselves any other way and so indentured themselves out. Some of it was people who wanted to improve their station in life. That seems weird. So you improve your station by becoming a slave? Yeah, because a lot of wealthy people would educate their slaves so they could handle their stuff. And so then at the end of your service, you, you leave and you've got a better station in the world. Um, so in terms of hierarchy in the home, the parents come first. And one would think that the kids come next, but what Paul is getting at is in an ancient household, the children, uh, especially the oldest son, was under the authority of slaves until he came to, comes of age. And that means that, yes, the child is a son. Yes, he is going to inherit all the stuff, but functionally, he is no different than a slave because he hasn't come into his inheritance. That's the image that Paul's trying to get across. He is, in fact, under a guardian or a steward. The so what of that comes in verse 3. Look there. Paul says, thus we also, when we were underage, had been enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Dun, dun, dun. Okay, weird. But this actually makes a ton of sense. That phrase, elementary principles, is important. In the ancient world, I remember my first college philosophy class, um, and I was a philosophy religion major, uh, which was in the same department. I focused on the religion side of things, but we had, to, we had to take a bunch of philosophy classes. I remember my philosophy professor, my first philosophy professor, who I think was uh, like Plato's brother. He was so old. Um, 
And, and he would talk about how uh, all of, like in the ancient world, especially the Greeks, they, they kind of understood, they saw, they saw certain things as undergirding all of the world. And those things were related with some kind of element. So if you thought the world was kind of driven by change, it was because everything was held up by fire. And the, but if in another way, it was like, no, it's not fire, it's water. Uh, and, and so the ancient Greeks believed that the universe was made up of certain basic parts, certain elements, not elements like we think, not a periodic table, but these, these elements, and that those spiritual forces dwelt behind those things as well. And this was well known. And this, here's the thing. That would have been the reality for non-Jewish, like Gentile folks who became Christians. But Paul is saying, we were held captive. We were under these elementary principles of the world. He's including himself in that. Well, that doesn't make any sense. What is he talking about? I mean, okay, you're saying that Non, I get it, non-Jews are spiritual slaves and bondage, whatever false beliefs they held, but, but Jewish folks had true worship. They had the true God. They had, they had God's word. They, they, that's, that's why verses one and two matter. Paul is saying we're all in the same boat. We're all in bondage to these spiritual assumptions, right? So maybe, maybe you're confused. So let me kind of sketch out how this works. See, the Bible tells a story um, and we talk about this nearly every week, if not every week, because it's important. The Bible tells the story that um, humanity came to be broken and separated from God. We broke relationship with him. And so most of us, if we think that uh, humanity has any problem whatsoever, if we think that there's a problem between us and God, it's generally like we're not good enough, we're not moral enough, we're not religious enough. If people would just get religious they would be fine. But that's not what the Bible says. The Bible actually tells us that it's our relationship with God is broke, is, that's broken. We're made to be dependent on him, to find our meaning in him, to get our value from him, to understand what, what all truth and reality is from him, not from ourselves. But we are bent on finding those things anywhere but him, anywhere but God. And the Bible says this is true of all of us, all of us. Every single person, not just those people out there, all of us. And that we are stuck in that such that if God doesn't do something, we will always be there. Always. Okay, here's where this ties in. Think of Jewish folks of the time that Paul is talking about like we understand religious folks today. Religious folks, they would never argue they're perfect, right? I mean, nobody out there, nobody's perfect but they're doing all right. They're like, you know, I'm not, no, I'm not perfect. I did, yeah, I do some bad things, but I'm doing, I'm doing okay. I, get, I, I think that's what we tend to think. They go to church, they try to keep their noses clean. But those irreligious people, <laughs> yeah, those are the messed up people, right? They're the messed up ones. Paul says, no, no, no. We're all in the same boat. We're all in spiritual bondage. We're all held fast by these elementary principles, these basic assumptions. And as I say that, I know that I'm running the risk of offending some of us in here because we've always seen ourselves as fundamentally different from those people. I mean, we're here, right? I mean, you've been to church your whole life. I mean, maybe not lately, but you've done your bit. 
You may even believe some of what the Bible says. Jesus is an okay dude. Maybe church isn't your thing, but you're still spiritual, right? You're not really entirely certain what that means, but you would consider yourself spiritual, fairly in tune with the spiritual reality, and you try to love and accept people. And you know that what you try to do is make sure that your spiritual ledger comes out in the black for the cosmic scales ever be in your favor, right? You're not in bondage. Nah. But others of us, though, were offended because we're not sure you buy this whole spiritual thing. You kind of self-identify. No, I'm not religious. Of course I'm not religious. It's all bunk. I don't, I don't need any of that. And I just said that all of us are in spiritual bondage, and you disagree because you're free to follow what you want. You're not beholden to any so-called God. You're not in bondage to anything. Your problem with religion in the first place is it seems to be all about control. So the notion that you're in this boat is just beyond incredible. And this is because both of us, both those groups, we tend to misunderstand what, what these elementary principles are. So let me flesh some of them out. I know I'm flawed. So what I have to do is I've got to work really hard. I've got to be incredibly self-disciplined. I've got to I've got to put on a good face because if I am, then I'll be accepted. God's real. I believe God's real. And he's angry. But if I keep obeying him, keep my nose clean, he'll like me. Or at least tolerate me. I'll take toleration. You know, I'm not really sure about any of that, but what I do know that if I'm going to be somebody, I've got, to, I've got to create that for myself. I've got to make myself somebody. I've got to make myself matter. And if I'm going to matter, it's going to be because other people think highly of me. They think well of me. I mean, that's not at all. But maybe it's, you know, the world is insanely dangerous. I've got to i got to make myself safe. i got to keep myself safe. we got to make my kids safe. It's just everything is terrible. Here's the common assumption in all of these. Myself. Every one of them is independent. God made us all to depend on him, but we are hell-bent on depending on anything else. And of course we are. Because we are made to depend on something you're made to. So the fact that you, you find yourself believing that I, to keep myself safe, I have to depend on my money is not weird. If you find yourself like, I have to make myself loved so I depend on my ability to make people happy, you know, of course. You're made to depend on something. These elementary principles, whatever it is that we think, I must do this to get this. I must Keep, I must keep my bank account at this amount so that I'm safe. I must have really smart kids so that I can prove I'm a good parent. I must, I must, I must, I must make sure that I follow all the rules so that God is going to be happy with me. Whatever follows, whatever comes before the must, or even after it, let's say after it, whatever comes after the must is what you are in bondage to. The thing that you must do 
You will depend on something to make you right, to give you an identity, to prove your worth. Maybe you still don't buy it. So let me flesh out some more common principles. Things that we're most likely in bondage to. If you're, if you're, uh, if you're part of the religious crowd, it probably has something to do with morality. And, and when I say that, I know that a lot of us are like, Rick, <laughs> I mean, it's hard to not have that. And, not, and how do you not have something moral in your life if you're a Christian? That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is more... We tend to think that as long as we do good things, that God will like us, or at least like us more than someone else, right? I love you religious folks. I know that you tend to look at things, I used to call it the bear principle, but I'm in Florida now, so I'll call it the gator principle. Like, you don't, you don't have to outrun the gator, you just have to outrun the dude next to you, right? Uh, and then the gator will get him. That's all you really care about. I don't have to be perfect, I just have to be better than this guy. God will get him, and I'll get on. And I know morality is a slippery term. We talked about that. Talked about it last week. Some of us define it traditionally. Others of us define it less traditionally. But the point is that both of these look to our performance, our performance as our hope. For others, it's not morality. It's power. I have to be in control. I have to be the one calling the shots. Whether it's in our social circles, our jobs, our homes, whatever. Because we know if we have power, we're safe. And, and listen, I know. Some of us have very good reasons for needing to feel safe. We've been in vulnerable positions, and it has come back to bite us so hard. And so we're, I will never be in that position again. For others of it's money, right? That bankroll is going to prove that we're somebody. Whether you show off that bankroll with the latest eye product or the newest pair of Jordans, for others it's success. And prove dad wrong. Dad was wrong about me, and I'm going to show. Or I have to live up to dad. Maybe he didn't, or mom. Maybe it's not that they necessarily said something, but there was always this pressure. Like, I have to, if I have to achieve what they achieved so that I can show them that I'm worthy. Still, I just find it in love and approval. As long as I'm liked, I'm wanted, I'm desired, I will give anything to not be alone. What is it for you? Listen, don't pretend you can't relate. I mean, I can keep rattling them off if you want me to, but you're, you're not fooling me. You're not fooling me because I, I'm there too. Here's the thing about all of these things. None of them are bad things. None of them are bad. They're very good but they can't be ultimate. They're good things, but they make terrible gods. So long as I say I must have power, money, approval, be moral, successful, have value, whatever, to do all of these things, I am in bondage to that thing. You have to serve it. So it doesn't matter if you're bent religious or not. So long as you have to do something yourself to solve what you think your problem is, whether that's, I need to be safe, I need to be somebody, I need, to be, I, need, I need satisfaction, whatever it is, then you are in bondage to that thing. There's good news. Paul lays that out for us in a new standing. Look down at verses 4 to 5. 
Paul says, but when the fullness of time came, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that we might be redeemed from under the law, so we might receive the adoption as sons, okay? Now listen close, because you can't miss this. Here's the great difference between Christianity and every other world religion, worldview, whatever. Even if it's just pop culture self-help. All of those other things say, good news. Here's what you need to do. Here are the steps you need to take. Here's the the, the rules you need to keep. Here's the rituals you need to perform. Here's all of these things. Here's the the self-affirmation you need to do. The therapy you've got to walk through. All this stuff, and that will make things right. And Christianity says, no, 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 no. Christianity says something very different. It's why it's about freedom. Instead, it says, in the fullness of time, here's what God did to get to you. The fullness of time came and God didn't send his son to give you better rules. The fullness of time came so that God would send his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem, that is to purchase out of slavery those who were under it, to rescue them. You see, and I know this is under, misunderstood both by those who say they're Christians and those who aren't, but Christianity Christianity does not give you rules. It gives you a rescuer. All of Christianity rises or falls on who Jesus is and on what he did. Paul said God sent his son. That's totally loaded language. In the Old Testament, the son that was awaited was God's answer to his promise to make the world right again. And so for God to send his son, that means that God is finally answering his promise to rescue us from our brokenness. Because drowning people cannot rescue drowning people, God came, took on flesh to rescue us. See, here's the weird thing in that whole thing. Like, Christians do believe that God exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. Um, And Paul says that God sent his Son, that's God the Son. God became one of us in Jesus to rescue us. Paul says he was born under the law, which means he kept God's law. He lived the life we were made for. He was was perfect, not just good enough. (laughs) He was perfect, perfectly pleasing to God. He loved God and others with all of his being. It wasn't just a good moment. If I have like a good day, that's awesome. I feel great about myself. If I have that like, you know, you really loved that person well. I go, yeah, I did. Yeah, I did. Of course, in that moment, I'm, I've completely already missed the point and I'm loving myself again, right? But Jesus did it all the time. And then he came to redeem us from under the law. Here's what that means. When we broke relationship with God and we sought our independence, we came under guilt. And so Jesus came to live the life that we couldn't and then to bear our guilt before God. That is what forgiveness is. We cannot mistake that that is what forgiveness is. Forgiveness is always the betrayed person bearing the weight of the betrayal for their betrayer. Always. That is what forgiveness is. And that is what God did in Jesus. He didn't spank his kid to get you out of your spanking. He took the punishment. Not like vicariously, look, I'll I'll deal with this person instead of this person. No, 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 it's me. I'll take it for them. That's what makes it different. 
It's not about what we've done. It's about what God has done and whether we are willing to depend on him for it. And that brings us to a new relation. Look down at verses 6 and 7. Paul says, because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you're no longer slaves, but sons. And if sons, heirs through God. Okay, this is huge. This is huge. So stick with me. Check in if, you, if you've checked out. Many of us think if we have any exposure to Christianity that Jesus came to die for our sins. Well, duh. Yes. But for most of us, that means that we get a blank slate. But that is completely wrong. Paul says God sent the Spirit of His Son, that's the Holy Spirit, into our hearts crying, Abba, Father. Now, here's what that means. Abba is, um, is an Aramaic word. Aramaic was the language that Jesus and his disciples would have spoken, okay, in the, in the area of uh, Judea. That's what they would have spoken. Um, and it is, it, it roughly translates to daddy, but it not like daddy, like your little kids call you daddy. Daddy, in the same way that like, Grown men in Georgia still call their fathers daddy, right? Like, it's not a little, it's a term of endearment, yes, but it's not like little baby talk, goo goo gaga daddy, like that, 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 okay? Abba is a very intimate, very strong term of endearment, but it is not just for little kids. It's for all of us. It's for all. But here's what's so amazing about this. Scholars will tell you that this address, Abba, for God, is completely unique to Jesus. It's completely unique to Jesus. And what that means is, is that when the Spirit of God comes into our hearts, we don't get a blank slate. We get the relationship with God that Jesus has. That that, it, when it says you are sons, he's not just like ignoring the women who would have been listening. He's saying you're united to Jesus, who is the Son, and now you are sons, men and women, heirs, men and women, in the same status in Jesus, that you participate in that relationship. This is not a blank slate. When Jesus was baptized, God's voice was heard from heaven. This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Happened again a little later. Mount of Transfiguration, well, which is a, a weird word meaning a time in which Jesus got shiny. It's weird. You can look it up later. But um, Jesus is up on the mountain. He's with three of his disciples. And all of a sudden, it, he, there, there's Moses and Elijah who are there, which I've always wondered how Peter recognized them. It's not like they had pictures. Like, oh, Moses. Like, how do you know? I don't know. Who else would it be? Like, so Moses and Elijah are there, and Jesus suddenly gets transfigured. He, he, there's a bit of that glory that kind of begins to shine through him. And, and Peter's so verklempt, he doesn't know what to do. He's like, I don't know, let's build tents. You get the sense, he's just like, tent, you know? And so all of a sudden, this cloud surrounds, and God goes, this is my son. Listen to him. That kind of pleasing, that kind of, how much God the Father thinks of Jesus. You're united to him. What is true of him becomes true of you. That is what he thinks when he looks at you. 
It is not just a blank slate. It is a full one. It is a slate full of the pleasure of God, full of the love of God, full of the delight of God. And Paul says that all of this comes through God. In other words, it's not something you accomplish. It's not something that your type A personality gets. It's not something that you just kind of walk into because, you know, God doesn't really care enough anyway. It's because Jesus has done it for you. It's something that God provides for us. Now, let me conclude this by simply drawing some strings together. Some of us are here this morning, and this is totally new to us. And if you're bent a little more religious, you're struggling right now because you're offended, because you're like, what have I been doing all of these years then? Why have I been working so hard? Are you telling me, Rick, that I have been doing this for the last 30, 40, 50 years, and my deadbeat brother had been living the life that I'm secretly jealous of, but never felt free to do because I had to do this, and you're telling me that he has as much of the delight of God as I do because he's in Jesus and I'm in Jesus. It's offensive. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, it's not really, all that stuff you've done isn't really accomplishing anything. At the same time, you're probably also a little enticed by the prospect that you don't have to feverishly keep working. Because Jesus has done more than you ever could and is offering you the benefits of what he's done. You're wondering, what if I could be actually assured that God is perfectly pleased with me? What if, what if I could be assured of that? If you're bent away from being religious, though, you're probably really skeptical because it sounds way too good to be true. And you're like, Rick, you, you don't know my life, bro. Like, you don't know what I've done. Uh, and you're right, I don't. But can we be honest? You don't know my life either. You think I was born with a Bible in my hand? I wasn't born into the church. I have a trail of wreckage behind me too. Failures I've made, people I've wounded, layers of scars on my heart, even as a pastor. Not just what happened before, but like even stuff since. And I don't have to know what you've done because I know that Jesus is enough. There is nothing wrong with you that's not wrong with me. Nothing. And Jesus is enough. But here's the thing, it's not simply enough to understand that. You gotta have faith, and I talked about it last week, that faith word is slippery. Do you know, I brought that chair out, and we talked about the fact that you can know a lot about the chair, and you, can, you, can, you have a lot of your understanding, you can even be absolutely certain that that chair's enough to hold you, but until you place your weight in it, it's not faith. It's just assent, it's just understanding. I know, I know, I know your life is messed up. I know you're doubting right now that it's as good as I said it is. But you have to put your rear in the seat. You've got to return to dependence on God through Jesus. It's what you were made for. Now, I get it. Some of us, for some of us, that's old news. <laughs> old news. We're like, yeah, I know. Except it isn't. We've already kind of sat in the seat, but we kept finding parts of us slipping off of it. Right? just doesn't just sliding off over here, or sliding off over there, hedging our bets. We hedge our bets, right? I know Jesus is enough, but 
I'm going to work on a little bit of power over here on the side. I know Jesus is enough, but I'm going to make sure that my 401k is in good shape because if all breaks loose, something's got to take care. I got to take care of myself. Listen, Jesus doesn't just offer to take your penalty. He gives you his standing. Can anything in the universe be better than being not just a child of God, but the child of the heir of God, the one who inherits it all? Is success better than that? Is power? Sex? What do those get you? Yeah, momentary satisfaction at best. At best. And then you got to get back on the treadmill. He is the delight that you and I were made for. Our souls pant for him like a thirsty animal in the desert. And he can more than satisfy you. Because in him, we've gone from orphan, from slave, to precious child, the one in whom he is well pleased, not because of what we've done, because of what he was willing to do for us. Do you pray with me? Lord, let the gospel go deep in our hearts this morning. And as we respond in song, let our hearts sing with this truth. And if we've, never, if we've never put our weight on Jesus, Lord, give us faith to do that even now. Return us to the dependence we were made for, we ask in Christ's name. Amen.